Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, 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 welcome. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I'm your host, Rob Watson. Um, we have another really great show lined up for you today, and um, are glad you are joining us. Last week, we had, I thought, a really fascinating conversation, and please do um, make sure you check out that podcast. Um, uh, but the show last week was about the tragedy of heterosexuality and really looking at the heterosexual norm and um, kind of a lot of the negative that that, um, pardon the expression, quote, unquote, lifestyle brings or, or experiences that society um, has gleaned from that. Um, today we're going to actually flip the paradigm completely to the other direction, um, and today we are going to talk about queer advantage and how um, LGBTQ people can unlock their superpowers by embracing the power of their own identity. Um, so it's kind of on that similar spectrum of what we talked about last week, um, but coming from the rainbow and positivity side of things. Um, today's guest is somebody who I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, his name is Andrew Gelwitz. Andrew is a celebrity fashion stylist. He started in the fashion department at GQ, and uh, he later worked in celebrity booking for Teen Vogue. Uh, the people he's worked with uh, include Catherine O'Hara, Tommy Dorfman, Michael Douglas, Lisa Renna, Tove Lowe, the Queer Eye cast, and many others. Uh, he has been featured internationally in Forbes, The Hollywood Reporter, in Style, New York Times, and People. His writing has been published in The Hollywood Reporter, Out, the Huffington Post, Harper's Bazaar, and Teen Vogue, naturally. Um, so he knows what he's talking about. He has certainly written his own queer advantage, and I think that is what inspired him to do a series of interviews of all sorts of leaders, some of them well-known, some of them not, all of them accomplished. Um, they're leaders from uh, Troy Sivan to Margaret Cho, uh, George Shakay, Billie Jean King, um, Shangela from RuPaul's Drag Race, Adam Rippon, and, and many, many more. And we're going to talk about a lot of those. Um, before we get started, though, with, uh, with Andrew, uh, I do want to welcome my illustrious co-host, journalist, Brody Lemeck, to the show. Brody, how are you doing? Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, and greetings to our listeners. We appreciate very much you tuning in. Um, today uh, is going to be an interesting day in the presidential political elections race as the candidates are going to be in two separate town halls broadcast by two separate networks. Uh, President Trump will be with uh, my NBC colleague, uh, Savannah Guthrie, uh, or peer, not colleague, uh, and uh, former Vice President Joe Biden will be with ABC News. 
Uh, and we're going to address and, and the president first. And I have a question first. for you. Yeah, yeah, I have a question for you on that. Why in the world didn't they do that staggered? So you would have one, and then after it was over, you could turn over and watch the other one. Is this being ridiculous to have them compete? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, angst over that particular issue, and there's been some serious criticism uh, leveled at uh, NBC News for um, putting Trump on the same night as Vice President Biden only because of the fact that uh, once the announcement had made, been made last week that they weren't going to do another uh, presidential second debate, uh, that the town halls are going to be you know, set up the way they were. Uh, so there's there's been some discussion about that. Um, uh, Trump, uh, however, has been keeping very much in character today. Uh, he was channeling uh, the late Beatle John Lennon. He told a crowd at a rally in Greensboro, North Carolina, that only Jesus Christ is more famous than him. But that wasn't everything the president said. He also indicated that uh, in a barrage of Twitter attacks, um, he called uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer a dictator. And uh, he was doing that also in a short interview on Fox Business, uh, going down the whole route as he's been his meme recently about, you know, Democrats and how bad they are and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, speaking of NBC, in the speech in uh, Greenville, North Carolina, the president said this, you know, I'm being set up tonight. I'm doing this town hall with Comcast, con, right, con, because it's a con job. Comcast, con, not com, Comcast. So I'm doing it, and it's NBC. It's the worst. Uh, and then, of course, uh, on another subject, talking about the gentleman uh, who had been alleged to shot a protester, a Trump supporter at a protest in Portland, Oregon, the president on the, uh, well, it, what ended up being the uh, shooting death of the suspect, uh, this is exactly what the president said. We sent in the U.S. Marshals, took 15 minutes, and it was over. They knew who he was. They didn't want to arrest him, and 15 minutes later, that ended. Um, so, yeah, there's the president of the United yeah, States no. basically saying, yeah, well, it's okay. You know, they, they took care of the problem. I have these death squads that work for me. I, I mean, you know, obviously he didn't say that, but my level of disgust just kind of skyrocketed with that one. Uh, yeah, no, he's a nightmare. Um, so I want to ask you, Rudy, about the um, Supreme Court uh, hearings that have been happening. Yep, now we did that. a show, and I would, yeah, and I would point our listeners back to our show that we actually covered that in depth because I think we were pretty darn accurate in our assessment in that show and what's transpired. Um, what are some of the highlights that you saw? Well, the uh, Republicans today wrapped up uh, three days of hearings uh, on Judge Barrett. Uh, they're scheduling a vote next week. Um, it's going to be along party lines. Then it'll move to the Senate floor, where, again, there will be another vote along party lines. Uh, at this point, uh, she will be confirmed as the next Associate uh, Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. There's virtually no way to stop that. Um, however, a couple of pointers that came out of, out of today's hearing, a lot of Democrats and progressives uh, were angered when um, California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking member on the judiciary, praised 
Chairman Lindsey Graham and said, quoting, I just want to thank you. This has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. Thank you so much for your leadership. And, of course, that immediately set off progressives, the left, and a few other people. Um, Yeah, well, you know, in the course of the hearing uh, yesterday, early on, Judge Barrett uh, used the term sexual preference. um, Yeah, I wouldn't ask you about that. Well, the term in and of itself is offensive to most folks in the LGBTQI spectrum because it implies that LGBTQI people are making choices, which is obviously a falsehood and incorrect. It's also the name of the Christian right. Um, She then walked, uh, after being called on it uh, by Hawaii Senator, uh, she walked it back a little bit later. Uh, and gave kind of an apology that was an apology, non-apology, which we've come to expect um, from, uh, you know, members of the Christian right. Uh, Also under uh, questioning by Senator Durbin, Senator Booker, uh, Senator Kolbachar, uh, Judge Barrett indicated that she was not aware that she'd uh, spoke to a group on five separate occasions Uh, whose umbrella parent group, of course, is the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is still trying to recriminalize uh, homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, most of her demeanor was standoffish. She uh, basically said, look, I'm not answering any questions because I'm not policy or, you know, it's just not appropriate. She invoked what we call the Ginsburg rule where nominees don't talk about, you know, uh, hypotheticals and what decisions they're going to make. And, uh, you know, she, she basically tried to paint herself as, you know, a, a person who's going to, you know, interpret according to the law and, and the constitution, et cetera. Um, she did that on Roe v. Wade. Uh, she was, the, the Democrats went after her on Roe v. Wade. They went after her on um, same uh, sex marriage she was asked pointed questions, which she refused to answer on both of those counts. Um, you know, the ADF thing, I wasn't aware, uh, sexual preference, and then a half-hearted apology. She was virtually everything that I said in that one show we did on the high court uh, with right. uh, Kay Kendall, the uh, legal director of the Southern Poverty Law Center a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's the same thing that Kate and I were talking about. I mean, it, it, this is, it is what it is to quote, some people, you know, it just, it is what it is. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, it I mean, and, and, and yeah. And I just want to point people also to that. I wrote an article for the LA blade um, and they can Google it on um, basically it is what you just said it is what it is. I mean, this is just, you know, it, it, she would not be in this position if she was not in a position to rule on all those cases. They, I mean, it's sort of a, a chicken and the egg kind of concept with her. Well, um, the, you know, they wouldn't have put her there if she wasn't the person that that they have deemed that will carry out all those things. I mean, it's just the way. Well, it is. there's more concern because there is a critical case coming up that'll be before the court on the Affordable Care Act, which literally could undo it. And she has previously voiced opposition to it and criticized. Uh, previous decision that was actually written by Justice Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, the other problem is that 
this election is going to be messy. There's, it's unavoidable. You are with the president not committing to a peaceful transfer of power, with him going after mail-in balloting, with him and launching attacks on the election process, with an attorney general of the United States who's complicit in most of that, and she's going to be sitting on the court. And now we have a six-three setup. It just it, it it's adding unnecessary petrol to a flame that's already been lit and it's already getting higher. That was also uh, pointed out. Senator Durbin of Illinois uh, highlighted that, as did Senator Booker of New Jersey. So at the end of the day, um, it's just basically throwing more, you know, kindling on the fire and seeing how fire, how high the flames are going to go. I, you know, personally, you know, after 40 years of being a political reporter covering your country, Rob, I've never seen it this bad, and I've certainly never seen anything like this. And I am just looking forward to November 3rd about as much as I am to having a wisdom tooth pulled. Well, I'm looking forward to it on a positive because that is the day when we start to shift this. And this is, I mean, today's show is about empowerment, and that's what I hope people take away from it is it is time to be empowered um, and take things back. Um, this is the darkest before the dawn with the um, shift of power on the Supreme Court, and this is our opportunity to move it forward. So you may have your wisdom, too. I'm looking forward to it today where we, we take this, this puppy back. So anyway, um, with that, though, I want to shift gears and move to um, – Unlocking Your Queer Advantage, and uh, with that, uh, I want to welcome to the show our special guest, uh, Andrew Gillick. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, this uh, this was a really great read for a book. I mean, I, I really enjoyed every minute of it. You talked to one heck of a lot of people. How did you um, go about finding all these different people to put in the book? Yeah. Um, you know, I must admit it, it was a process. <laughs> uh, that was about almost three years of tracking everyone down and getting people to speak with me. But um, really it was quite a bit of research, honestly, at the beginning um, because it was – important to me to highlight people that are not just celebrities. Um, you know, I, I, I love Michael Kors and Billie Jean King and George Takei and all these fabulous names, but I also want to highlight people who may not be household names, but are also achieving really incredible things in their own respective fields. So taking just a dive into finding out who those people are and what they're doing and what, what they're accomplishing, um, and then just going after them and asking them to give me some of their time. Yeah, I thought that was really wonderful that you did that because it made it really accessible. Um, I think a lot of um, books that feature different celebrities you look at their talent, you look at a different aspect of it, and, you know, their their queerness is sort of, you know, just there. And, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, by by pulling in a lot of these people who have been accomplished in, in different walks of life, um, I thought 
it just added a level of, of fascination, at least from, from my perspective. Um, I want to take you back, though, to your own inspiration. Um, I know in the book you talk about um, you won a, an award from Bubble um, that had declared you one of the 100 most inspiring New Yorkers. And you talk about how in the um, an interview for that award, um, something that <laughs> gave you your own sense of reflection and revelation was when they asked you a question, what drives you to succeed? And the answer you heard yourself giving, um, what was that answer and where did that come from? Yeah, I, I said be, I, I related it to my being gay. Um, and, you know, as I write in the book, it took me by surprise, really, um, because I've never, I never, nece- I never necessarily had that conversation myself as to why or what was driving me. Um, and, you know, when I being asked that and thinking about it and kind of connecting the dots to motivations and what is driving me to succeed. I really thought, you know, I think a lot of it has to do from my experience of growing up gay. And, you know, I think it stems from that initial urge and instinct and desire from a very young age that I think many questioning or queer people face is just wanting to show that they're worthy, that they are, you know, not less than, that they are capable, that they are even more capable, and that driving, you know, fire to just have that acceptance. And um, I think that really kind of was almost like the domino effect that really led to a lot of motivation and drive and ambition that has been, I think, very beneficial, which I also discussed, to my career and personal life as well. Right. No, I I thought that was fascinating. And it's it's a point that um, I've actually talked about a lot over the years um, as being a a gay writer and people, you know, it's like when you come out – a lot of people, a lot of straight people, well-intending and allies, want to ask you questions like, you know, like you've, you've been embedded in the LGBT community, so now <laughs> you have the answers, you know, from, from that community of uh, your in-depth um, study of it all. Um, but the, the, the question always comes up, you know, it's like, why, why are gay people, you know, why are, in the creative industries, why are they so, so many of them gay people, why actors and, and um, designers and you know, hairdressers, and, you know, why is that so predominantly um, gay-fueled? Gay and for me, I guess part of the, my thought on it is that because when we were growing up and we were told by society and our parents and everybody around us, this is what you have to do. This is you're going to mm-hmm. want to marry a woman and you're going to have these kids and you're going to have this white picket fence and you're going to be this way and this is it. And inside, knowing, you know, that's not fitting. <laughs> that isn't me. That mm-hmm. isn't how I feel. That it, to me, what, what shifted was 
because I knew I was going to be addressing life in a creative, different way, I was going to have to think outside the box because I was outside the box. They were handing me that when I turned to creative things, I was naturally prone to not fitting inside those boxes either. So it gave Mm -hmm. me sort of this license to be creative, license to approach things from a different angle because I was already being accustomed to approaching life from a different angle. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the themes in your interviews kind of touch on that and, um, you know, um, speak to that in in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. What I wanted to ask you is, as you did the research, you had all these people that you you talked to, um, um, who shocked you the most? Who, Who, when you actually were interviewing them, came up with an answer that surprised you? Oh, you know, I, I, I don't think I can name a singular person. I think what I found most surprising is the depth of the queer advantage. You know, I, I went into the book really thinking that, okay, yes, there's an accelerator for ambition and drive and, those kind of things that I had initially thought to myself, but, but with talking with each person, every person, regardless of their age, background, industry, they all had something incredibly unique to themselves that was their clear advantage. And I feel like, I felt like every time I was talking to somebody, I was having to kind of reexamine and reflect on my own life and be like, oh, my God, I never even thought about that. Or, you know, all those things. It's like when you, like, read a book or see a movie uh, the second time around, and you're like, how did I miss that? Um, So I think that was what's so surprising is that it just kind of kept unveiling itself to me at each moment. Um, And to me, that was the most delightful surprise. Andrew. Well, I wanted to follow that up. Andrew, um, mm-hmm. damn near everybody on this list I've interviewed at some point in my 40 years. Um, and as I'm going through the list, I'm thinking to myself, there's a common theme running through here. Uh, mm-hmm. Congressman Mark DeCano, Congressman Barney Frank, knew Barney real well, uh, Mayor Anise Parker, uh, Elton's husband, David, um, Lance's uh Lance himself, and of course his husband, uh, Tom, uh, George and Brad. Um, I'm assuming you probably talked to Brad even though you've got George up here. But there's a common theme that runs through all of these, okay? Jim Ogerville, Adam Rippon. It's adversity. It's almost as if the queer advantage is the fact that we have such, and I'm gay too, so obviously I'm speaking for myself. Um, It almost seems as though that sense of adverse adversity that we have to put up with as LGBTQI individuals and, and depending upon how we embrace it and how we use that as a motivation puts us, you know, to utilize that as more of an advantage. Thus, as Rob would say, taking a, a big negative and making it a positive in all the interviews that you did, boy, George, for example, um, when you were speaking with them and, and honing in on that, I guess, thematic area, what did you find? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's such a great point. I think 
that's one of the things I think most interesting about this is how do you take that adversity, those obstacles, those struggles, and turn them into your strength? Um, and I think that's really what is a huge factor about this is, yes, like so many of those people that you listed and that are in the book, they face such adversity that it made them that much more strong uh, strong and um, determined and resourceful, um, where I think that built this really beautiful and powerful strength and resilience within them. Um, so it's something about almost, you know, trauma and how you deal with it. I wouldn't disagree with One trauma thing. because I think in many cases trauma is very much a part of, you know, the queer experience overall, because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, speaking again for myself, because I'm 61 years old, you know, when I was coming up as uh, a young person in my native Ontario, um, I grew up just outside of Toronto, that you, you couldn't be gay. You flat mm-hmm. out could not be gay. You know, and, you know, you leapfrog into, you know, present day, and with all the tremendous, you know, gains that have been made, um, you know, of, even of significance, you know, Jim's, you know, marriage case before the high court uh, and, and some of these others, uh, George's huge fight being a closeted, you know, Asian uh, gay actor. You know, he was already handicapped by being Asian, but being gay on top of it, man, we just say closeted. I, I've had conversations with George about that. You know, mm-hmm. it, I think it really is a matter, okay, of doing just that. But the other thing that I would add and or question is what was the common denominator amongst all these people? And, and I'm going to ask you because you, you, I'm talking now about your book and your interview. What was the common denominator for all of these folks that you found? The common denominator was that they took the – you know, their life experiences and made it work for them. They did not bend to, they did not let the trauma overwhelm them or beat them. They did as something to galvanize them. And I think that's the common denominator and that they had that, you know, strength and, uh, Derive to prove to themselves, to others, um, that they are just as strong and capable. So I think that's really the common denominator is that they were able to turn any adversity and struggles into a really poignant and powerful strength. Okay. I I actually wanted to ask about um, the uncommon denominator. Um, between a lot of your your interviewees. Um, One thing that kind of stood out to me as I was reading through the different interviews was I I was seeing some subtle and not so subtle differences between those who came out from the closet or came out like later after they had had earned their notoriety, uh, like uh, George Sakai and Billie Jean King and others, uh, versus, say, a Troy Savant who is young and came out in his popularity. It, it was part of his identity in 
what he became and, and the, um, the, the uh, accomplishments that, that he made. What, what were your observations between the generational folks, I mean, from one generation to the other, um, and how was their empowerment different? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that was also one of the most interesting things and something I was really, you know, keen on exploring is the age differences. Um, you know, I think Tro- Troy is an excellent example. He built for himself a really wonderful and wide uh, audience and fan base on the Internet. And before he really launched his music career, because before he was on YouTube, he made the decision to come out. And obviously that's such a drastic shift from George Takei and Billie Jean King. And I think, you know, I, I just don't, I really don't think it would have been possible for George and those people to have been able to do that. And, you know, I think, George and I had a conversation about how, you know, his experiences growing up and through his, you know, early adult life um, are quite different than mine because I came out my senior year of high school. Um, Yet at the same time, both have, you know, the similarity of traumatic experiences. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I think also about Anise Parker, and Anise came out very early in college, I believe. Um, and she had to fight that much harder to be taken seriously. And um, I just, you know, it's interesting because Troy, I think, is almost, you know, having come out now, um, he's almost loved because of his openness and clearness and I just I that really just would not have been possible um, I would say even like 10 years ago yeah it's it, it, it is something that observing that having been in the fight for a while and fought for our different rights and then we get to this point and then there's elements within the um, the community for lack of a better term of, of folks who are much more expectant of people to get it and to understand the LGBTQ point of view immediately. And, you know, it's, it's, from my perspective, it's, it's like where we were giving huge uh, arenas of bandwidth um, for people. And now, like we were talking about just in these Supreme Court hearings when um, uh, Amy Barrett used the term sexual preference, um, you know, five years ago, Talking to somebody who was at least voicing positivity, we wouldn't have worried about the use of that term. And now it's such a linchpin. Um, it's like mm-hmm. our, our our tolerance level of of missteps or has has become um, tighter. Um, I wanted to ask you about some specifics that came out that are kind of thematic. Um, uh, Alana Mayo, um, in your conversation with her, highlighted being a contrarian and um, really liking that about herself, that she was living as a contrarian and, um, uh, you know, that gave her a certain edge. Is that going to be like a short-term benefit as the LGBTQ 
consciousness becomes more and more mainstream, where we are no longer contrarian? Um, I think it's a good question. I think, you know, I think in the regards to what the context of what Alana was speaking to, you know, I think she enjoys being a contrarian in all aspects. And her queerness is just one facet of that. Um, But I think that's also, you know, a point that is brought up by other people as well, like Sam Lance is, you know, how do we keep our, the, the, the incredible part of being queer is that difference, and how do you keep that as it's becoming more mainstream? Um, so I think it's, it's an interesting thing, or thing to think about, but, um, you know, for Alana, I mean, she, I mean, she's such a brilliant, creative, brilliant businesswoman, um, and I think, especially in her role as um, a producer in Hollywood, um, I think that contrarian energy and um, almost, yeah, that contrarian energy, I think that's a really powerful asset to someone in her position when she needs to think of and be able to understand concepts that will stimulate audiences and really push the, push the needle forward. Yeah, no, Absolutely. It, just, it reminds me of kind of like the Lady Gaga theme in her Art of Pop um, album where she's kind of talking about how, you know, when she was edgy and, and avant-garde, you know, she, you know, she gained praise until that art became pop and mainstream and then uh, she was getting criticism. You know, she was no longer, mm-hmm. you know, you know that, that uniqueness. It was now sort of part of the, the bland populace. Um, I want to ask you one thing I, I found amusing was several of the writers in your in, in the book, um, uh, New York Times columnist uh, Jennifer uh, Finney uh, Bullum and uh, then uh, Sam Lansky both called out the concept of their LGBTQ queerness as being superpowers which uh, mm-hmm. I was going to think that it was a writer thing, but then uh, I saw in another interview that um, somebody else was also calling that term um, out as well. So I, I had to relinquish the fact that it was not just the writers feeling that way. But what, what is the superpower? What is the queer superpower? Well, I think the, the queer superpower, and this is also one of my favorite things, is that it's different for each person. Um, you know, so for, I think, Jennifer Penny Boylan, who's one of my favorite writers, she talks about how, you know, queerness is, gives you x-ray vision. Um, and that's almost like a superpower because, she's, you know, she's able to see things and reinterpret things and deconstruct things at such a, a wider level. Um, and I think, but Sam, his superpower would be, you know, different for him. It's, it, I mean, it's literally just like, you know, any superpowers, like superhero, all superheroes, it, I'm not a, like a superhero person, but I, like, no one has the exact same superpower, but they all have, it's, the common theme is that they're all superpowers, you know, does that make sense? You know, it's like, 
is really going to be different for each person and their own experiences and whatever it is they're doing. And I think that's what's so incredible about these queer superpowers and queer advantages because, you know, as you can see throughout the book, it's not limited or exclusive to just writers or just fashion designers. You know, you can be an Olympic athlete and still have your own unique individualized superpower. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating also because if you look at actual superpower movies and stories and, and storylines, they all, not all, um, many of them reflect the LGBTQ coming out experience and hiding yourself and not letting people see who you really are and, um, you know, the ability to do things that other people can't and that type of thing. So it's sort of a, even if you look at like, like this, a superpower story, you see the through line already in, in those mm-hmm. stories as well. Um, so yeah, it just, it seems super fascinating. Um, uh, one, I love that you have uh, Shangela in the book. Um, um, <laughs> I've watched Shangela a lot in uh, RuPaul's Drag Race and, and actually her progress in that, you know, because she started out on that, mm-hmm. you know, brand new to drag and then developed up to the point where she was in um, A Star is Born and Lady Gaga pulled her in. Um, and I love the quote um, where she says, I love being gay. You can write that down. Um, <laughs> describe, describe her spirit and what impact that had on you, including her in the book. Uh, no, I, I, I feel the same way about Shanda. I, so obviously I, you know, I'd watched her in RuPaul's Drag Race and I loved her energy and exuberance and just positivity. You know, you can't watch Shangela and be upset. I, I mean, it's like scientifically impossible. Like you just have to smile. Um, and I actually, I did, was doing a photo shoot with her and I was styling her for a cover. And so we were doing this shoot in, uh, I believe it was Brooklyn. It was kind of late in the day. She had just done a full day of press, running around Manhattan in her heels, like full, in full drag, um, which, you know, that's takes a lot of energy when you start at like 6 a.m. Um, and she came and she came to the shoot and she, you know, she just came in with that same Shangela energy. And, you know, I think as a professional and as an entertainer, it was just so refreshing to see that. And um, I think that positivity is so unique um, when it, because it feels so genuine, you know, I feel like it's not forced. It just feels very intrinsically her. Um, And to me, that was really important to show. And I also love that she doesn't confine herself to, just one thing, you know, she, when she talks about in the book, she's Shangela, but she's also DJ, the actor, but then she's Shangela, the drag queen, and then the entertainer, and she's doing a star is board, and I feel like that um, desire and commitment to not being confined to expectations or other people's boxes is profoundly refreshing. Um, and oh, yeah. I, 
you know, I just, I had to highlight her. I had to highlight that and I wanted to highlight her and um, that just kind of unquenchable thirst for, you know, being out there. I just, I just, I love. Yeah. And and she's fascinating also in what we were talking about earlier in that um, obviously who she is and her success would absolutely not even be in existence if LGBTQ acceptance hadn't risen to a certain level of acceptance itself. Mm-hmm. Because that is mm-hmm. what her, her talent is and what her expression is all about. I mean, it's, it's, it's core and deep in that. And um, if our culture hadn't embraced that, um, you know, she's, she's ridden with that. Um, um, mm-hmm. So, again, it was just impacted me on this generational difference. Brody? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of, no, go ahead. you know, the Finish good... your thought. <laughs> I was actually going to... Oh, my God, I'm so spot. sorry. I thought you said... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's... it's uh, trust me. I, you know, I... I oftentimes when something like that happens and the guest starts answering, I'm actually more interested in their answer than whatever it was I was going to say. So uh, finish up your thought, please, by all means. I was going to say, you know, I think, um, and again, so sorry to, to have interrupted you, but I think, you know, that's also one of the great things that RuPaul's Drivers has done is it, it's brought these fantastic queens, obviously, into the spotlight, spotlight but also brought into the mainstream and even like the vernacular of the way people talk has changed and, you know, just the overall acceptance for, you know, I love the fact that like my straight friends and these straight guy friends are obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race. Like they literally will like, will be texting about who's our favorite queen. Like that is, that blows my mind. And I think that's (laughs) one of the most incredible, coolest things um, and I think that, you know, sh- that allows for Shangela to flourish and be the superstar that she is and to walk the carpet at the Oscars in full drag. Okay. Now it's my turn. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. As a journalist um, and as an editor who makes assignments, one of the things that I do is when I'm looking at interviews or I'm looking at who I want to interview or who I want to put together a story on, I make decisions and I compile a list of how I want to do it. I, you've got such an eclectic list in here uh, that I have to ask, what was your decision-making process and which stories did you wanted to tell? That's a good question. I mean, I, I really, and this kind of goes back to the first thing, I, I want to show a wide breadth of people and of queer people. Um, I, I, again, I, I love Michael Kors. I think he's obviously, and I love all these other fabulous, incredible artists that I, I featured that are celebrities because, you know, they are brilliant in their craft and business. But I, I think it's also good to show people that you can still be queer and be in tech and finance and politics and these industries that are not queer uh, necessarily you automatically equate with queerness. Um, so in determining who to talk to, it really was just thinking, have, have these, has this person 
really achieve something remarkable? Are they at the top of their field and are they really making a difference? Because that's who I want to talk to. I want to hear those people's stories because I want to know how did they get there? I want to look behind the curtain and get that look into their psyche and their thought process on how they were able to rise to the top and really push boundaries and make an actual substantial difference. Well, then let me congratulate you because let's see, Lance was an Oscar, husband Tom with gold medals, uh, Barney Frank, Mark, George, yeah, you pretty much nailed that one. No, seriously. <laughs> I, 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 Thank you. I'm just, I, I'm I mean, a little bit. Well, it's it's true. I mean, it's you know, uh, you know, Barney um, is, is a bit of a curmudgeon. I, I've known Representative Frank for over 35 years. I, I still call him Congressman, even though he's long gone out of you know the House. Um, but, you know, every one of the stories that you were telling is like kind of a snapshot of a different look of the community. One of the things that I have maintained, uh, at least in the 12 years that I've been loosely associated with queer media, has been that the LGBTQI community is like a prism. You hold it up to the light, you're going to get this vast array breaking out anywhere in rainbow colors. Um it's not homogenous. Everybody is different. Mm-hmm. Everybody's perception is different. There are some common themes that run through it. But I think that one of the most important things, and, and I still believe this, particularly for some of the stories that I had to cover uh, even 10, 12 years ago when we were losing all those kids to suicide and we've had problems with our trans kids and, our, uh, and, our, and especially our trans kids of color and our trans women, I, we just found uh, what was it? Another three got murdered. The last one on National Coming Out Day. We've now lost 37 trans women of color this this year, and and the one thing that's desperately needed, desperately needed, is to be able to tell these stories that have that kind of positivity to them, to make it so that they, you know, th- there are kids out there that are going to look at that and go, well, if they did it, I can do it. You know, it's mm-hmm. important. You know, and and again, I think that you know. You did a good job of putting out there, you know, at least in my estimation, um, you know, as a journalist and as an editor, the the storylines that needed to be out there. So as a role model basis, even in that capacity, you know, these young people can look at that and go, oh, wow. You know, because these, these stories are still going to be relative. And, you know, to that young gay kid sitting out there in the middle of, you know, the Heartland and BFE, Nebraska, to the trans kid in upstate New York, you know, the young black trans woman trying to figure out what she wants to do, you know, all the way across the board. It's, you know, we have the capacity. I think what's interesting, though, is, is that in many ways we really do have, to coin a phrase, the queer advantage. Rob? Mm. Yeah, actually, I wanted to take that um sort of the, the other direction a little bit um, in the, the same thing that Brody was talking about. In Destin Lance Black's interview, um, one of the things that I, I guess touched me in his discussion with you was his feeling of brokenness. Um, and obviously he, he overcame that to, to get to his level of accomplishment. 
Um, but I guess the thing that I was being impacted as I was reading that was the feeling how many kids don't make the leap, you know, don't leap on uh-huh. to success. What What is that bridge? What did, did you feel like in talking to these folks was that bridge from those of them that felt broken to empowerment? You know, I think it's such it's such a good question. I think it's also such a tricky question. I mean, you know, because, you know, the, like the stories you just told and kind of what Lance talks about in his not broken, brokenness, I mean, you know, I, I was that person. I was the, you know, closeted gay kid in Ohio who was deeply, deeply depressed and, absolutely suicidal, you know, and had to really mm-hmm. go into an intensive treatment center because it got to such a dangerous point. So, you know, I very, it's almost remarkable that I'm, you know, here, uh, to be quite frank. Um, and so that's, it, it's, you know, I, I wish I could have that a one in answer to tell, to say, this is the bridge but I, I I really don't think I'm I'm able to say that because I think for each person it 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 varies and I think that's also one of the things that we need to that we I I want to work on and need to work on that I know Lance is is dedicating his life to because he talks about he he says the same thing about how he doesn't want to leave it up to chance that he that someone's able to meet a queer person uh, that inspires them. Because he talks about how he himself was deeply depressed and how lucky he was to have met uh, some teachers who were gay. And that just really opened up his entire world. But he even says in the book, it shouldn't come to chance. It shouldn't come to luck and chance that he found that bridge. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the, you know, I think the really the step towards I guess answering that question is just the being able to tell these stories and show these stories and being able to show that there's options and you know and this is the you know the only option isn't to be a to be stuck and depressed and that you can really just flourish and not in not and not in spite of being queer but with the help of it and because of it. Um, I just, you know, I, when I, I, when I was writing this, I couldn't, you know, I was talking to these people. I just thought about me as a young kid and as a teenager, just, you know, like so depressed and how much I would have loved these stories. I, I really, I can just imagine myself like, you know, like, like figuring out a way to like, get get a copy of this book about anyone seeing it and like hiding it under my bed and you know reading it in the middle of the night like I just that's I really and I hope that you know young people and parents of queer children are able to see the incredible positives um, so that we don't hear more about all these but well so that we, we need to talk about these uh, struggles but 
that we hear more about the the positives and the pot and the really great advantages. No, absolutely. And one of the things you just mentioned or, or alluded to, which you you um, go over in the book um, at numerous places and numerous times, is the uniqueness that you know there's no one individual story or or magic bullet or anything like that. It's because we're you you draw the paradox between we have this shared experience and yet we're all feeling it and and walking through it in very unique and individual ways. And uh, one of the persons who is absolutely uniqueness personified um, and I, I find super fascinating is Margaret Cho, who you interviewed. Um, and I've always been fascinated with her because she has this sort of paradox of both publicly expressing her anger and in interviews, um, I don't think you touched on in your book, but in other interviews, she's talked about how, um, you know, she's angrily, angry publicly, but then she'll go to family events where she experienced the most profound personal um, affront and is very kind of, submissive and polite and um, still hangs with people who did great harm to her. Um, you know, and so she, she kind of writes that. But the one thing she brought up in your book was being bisexual in the mm-hmm. LGBT community and being other in a group of others. Um, what environment mm. did you pull out of that of being other in a group of others? I think it, it, it really kind of reminds me of what Alana May was saying as well, being contrarian. And, you know, Alana uh, identifies as bisexual as well. Um, so I think it, you know, from, from someone like Margaret, I think, you know, who's uh, an incredible comedian and, I mean, she does so, so much. Um, but, by being an, an other othered in a set of others, I guess, um, that's how she describes it. Um, you know, it gives, in my mind, that just gives her another vantage point to approach life and situations and scenarios. But at the same time, I, I think that's also an issue and, you know, something that I would hope that could be, um, you know, looked into more is that, you know, it's the queer community should not have people that are othered inside of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't identify as bisexual, but I wouldn't want to be othered within my own community. It just feels very counterproductive. Yeah, no, and I think that is that is a point that we would want to non other others in in our own community, and it, it's a, an issue. I mean, because it happens, it happens a lot. Yeah, um, on all all levels and all directions. Um, so I wanted to do some of the the housekeeping here, though, Andrew. Where where can people find the book? Um, how can they find out more about it? How can they find out more about you? Yeah. So, um, well, to Find out, find out more of me, find more about 
about me, follow me on Andrew Gelwicks, A-N-D-R-E-W-G-E-L-W-I-C-K-S, on all social media. Um, I have a link in my bio to purchase, but you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. You can get it from your local uh, bookstore and support them. Um, and all of that is available, all that information is available on my website and my social media. Wonderful. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to do a simple thing here. I rarely do, but I'm going to. To our listeners out there, I highly recommend Andrew's book. It's an extremely good read. If you have an LGBTQ young person or you have someone that you know that is questioning or maybe just needs a little pick-me-up and a little little energy of positivity, I highly recommend Andrew's book. Rob? Absolutely. And Thank Andrew, you. we are down to our, our very last few minutes with you, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for being here with us, and thank you for all your creative work and everything that you put out in the world anyway. Um, what have we not asked you that we should not? <laughs> um, you know, I think this was such this is honestly such a really nice conversation to be able to talk about these incredible trailblazers and um, you know I, I really just hope that the books can be accessed by everybody you know not young young queer people questioning parents I, I just I so hope that people can use this book as a resource and as something to motivate and give hope and um, you know, I'm just, I am so hopeful and excited that people will be able to gain something from this and that, um, you know, it will alleviate any stre- distress that anyone's having um, because I, I want people to be as excited about their future as a queer person or for their child's, you know, queer future as possible. And I, I thank you for allowing me on the show to talk about the book and for your wonderful support. Oh, no, it was, it, and I echo Brody's sentiment. Um, you know, I think it's an inspiration and I think everybody should get out and, and get this as soon as possible. Um, I, like I said, Andrew, I want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank Brody for his work, both um, as a journalist um, uh, and his getting information out to the world, as well as his participation here on the show. And I want to thank our listeners again. Um, tell your friends. Our podcast is available everywhere you can get podcasts. Just uh, do a search for Rated LGBT Radio um, and listen in and tell your friends to subscribe. We very much appreciate that. We will be back again next week with another show. So definitely stay tuned and tune into that. We can't wait to talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.